The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. This is John Zink coming at you for the first time in about four months because now I'm in Reno, Nevada. So uh, got my new office here, new podcast studio. And uh, today I'm very honored to be joined by uh, the one and only Tony Slonim, Anthony Slonim. Uh, he goes by Tony. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Tony. John, great to be here with you and welcome to Reno. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here. My wife and I uh, moved up here with our three-year-old son, Johnny, um, within about the last two months for remodeling a house uh, out in Damati Ranch. Uh, we're super happy to be here. And uh, Nevada is uh, proving to be a, a great place for us to live. So we're super happy. So uh, Tony is the president and CEO of Renown Healthcare. He is a physician executive with board certification in adult and pediatric critical care, a doctorate degree in public health and health policy, and author of numerous books. I could not believe how many books I found with your name on them um, doing my research for uh, today. So lives in, like me, Reno, Nevada, and born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. So my first question is, I think I, can, I know the answer, but what brought you to Reno, Nevada? Well, it's, it's very funny. You never know where life is going to take you, John. Nobody knows better than you what a journey uh, life is. And so, you know, you have to be flexible and, and responsive to opportunities that came up. And I, I've longed and aspired to be a health system CEO. And this was the right time and the right place and the right point in my career. And so we made it happen. That's awesome. Yeah. Like we were talking before, um, uh, Reno is a wonderful place to live. Um, my, my first couple times coming out here, I was born and raised in a small town in Northwest Illinois called Mount Carroll, Illinois. And one of my first ever, uh, uh plane trips was going to Reno, Nevada for a bowling tournament, really? yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, came out and uh, how Reno has changed in the last 30 years compared to when I first came out here. Without a doubt, I'll tell you, it's, it's so interesting. You know, the, first of all, the natural surroundings are so incredible. It's, it's for people who want to live their life in a healthy way. It is a magical context for that. You can bike ride, you can run, you can swim, you can anything you want in terms of outdoor activities year round. It's a great and healthy place to live. And it's just magical because the air is clean and, and the surroundings and the environment are just wonderful. The people are lovely. Uh, it's a great place to live. Oh, the air is clean right now. Yeah. Uh, go back just a few weeks and these terrible fires that were out here. Um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was hard to breathe there for a while. It, it really was. Talk about some of the, you know, it's interesting. We've had so many. Uh, natural challenges over the over the course between the pandemic and the fires and the hurricanes and all of that that has affected so many different parts of the country no matter where you live people are feeling really pressured 
uh, and the stress is, is certainly adding up. But on average, uh, the air quality here is really good when there's no forest fire. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, uh, one of my other lives is I'm a singer and a drummer in a band. And uh, my other cohort, who's also a singer and a drummer, we switch off. He and his wife lost their house in Grizzly Flats to that fire. Wow. Um, they, they just moved into the house three weeks prior to the fire. So, I mean, uh, just uh, horrible timing, but so many people, you know, were so badly affected by those fires. Um, but, you know, one of the other things that is amazing, we're going to talk about some of the first responders and some of these frontline workers that you work with and manage. But man, those firemen that went out there and saved so much of Lake Tahoe in that area. Unbelievable what they did because uh, that that fire was moving in on Lake Tahoe and Myers and some of those other places, and man, they saved almost every structure. Yeah, without a doubt, those, those folks are doing God's work. It's absolutely incredible for those who those people who have never experienced a fire uh, close to home like this. It is a very humbling experience. Not in the current fire because I was in a different geography. But last year, we had a fire here in town. We had to evacuate our home for 48 hours. And talk about fear and talk about, you know, it rocks you to your core. Everything, your home is supposed to be a safe place. And the, the need to grab your pets and grab your, you know, enough clothes on your back and get out because you can see the flames and your foot and the smoke coming in right there on that street you drive by every morning is a very scary proposition. We were lucky, uh, not always is that the case, but so appreciative of all of those frontline firefighters who, who saved so much because the memories and the, and the personal effects are, are fundamental uh, to who we are. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it also talks to the power of God and nature um, to make you feel, it, it really right-sizes us all when we go, Oh, I have absolutely no control at all. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So we talked a little bit earlier. Um, you and I met at an EDON event. And, uh, you know, I, I was very interested in coming up. And a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Rick Murdoch, said, you, you kind of have to come out because Tony is the key speaker here. And I got a chance to meet you there. Can you tell the people here just a little bit about uh, the EDON organization? Sure, absolutely. I'm honored and proud to be a member of the EDON, which stands for Economic Development Authority of Western Nevada uh, Board. And I've been on that pretty much since I came to town seven years ago. What a terrific board. EDON is led by uh, Mike Kazmierski, who has done an amazing job at helping us in the community to think about our economic development and to diversify our economy. Uh, we focus on the board on things like manpower and new business and things, businesses that are different than our history, where we were really focused on gaming and tourism. And now we still have those, but we complement them with things like tech and healthcare and other innovative approaches that can build and diversify our economy, which is really important during COVID and is just fundamentally important for a community to be able to have more than one, if you will, lifeline to, uh, to driving business. Well, we're looking forward to, uh, I'm actually going to meet with the folks next week in person. And I think uh, my company, IT Avalon, is going to be uh, joining EDON uh, to really get uh, 
more in touch with the the Reno and uh, uh, the the uh, Nevada uh, area here, so we can really get in touch with all the different uh, business leaders and key leaders around here. So I'm looking forward to that. Excellent, excellent. We look forward to having you. Now it's been an interesting couple of years. Um, COVID changed everything overnight, um, and uh, you know when everyone else is running from COVID, healthcare workers are running towards it. One of my first questions for you is, how do you as a leader, how, how do you keep people safe with something so unpredictable? I mean, that, that March, April, May of 2020 just had to be, you know, first of all, you probably were working 24 hours a day. How do you keep everybody safe in something where you're not really sure what's going on? Yeah, first, John, uh, thank you for acknowledging the amazing healthcare workers that we have, not only here in uh, Nevada, but around the country. People who answered the call, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, technicians, it didn't matter what you did. Housekeeping in hospitals is not, uh, ha- has not been one of those places that people have necessarily been. All of those people answered the call and continue to answer the call every single day to make sure that not only as we were battling the pandemic, but now as people have come back for care for things that they might have delayed, they're continuing to answer the call in an environment that's very stressful. People are tired. People have had enough of COVID. Uh, And what we've come to learn is how we help not only support amazing people from a leadership perspective, but how we help to reduce, if you will, the uh, crisis management of it. How do we get into a frame where this is our, I I hate this term, but I'm going to have to use it because it characterizes what we're facing. This is the new normal. COVID is not going away. COVID is about, you know, how are we advancing our work for patients who are affected by COVID and those who are affected by heart disease or cancer or stroke or influenza or any other thing, getting a car wreck in the morning. Those also are our jobs and helping to balance a team so that they're, they've still got enough in the tank to give when those others, uh, those other kinds of patients come in is it has been a large part of the leadership journey. And I'm blessed with an amazing team of leaders who helped to carry those messages forward. When we were in crisis last, you know, September, October, November here in Northern Nevada, yeah, there was a time when we were using our parking facility as a makeshift hospital and needed to make sure we were bringing everything we had to bear because there were simply not enough ventilators not enough protective equipment, not enough of, uh, of professionals or anything else we need. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say that now we are not nearly in that same position. 65% or so of the community has been vaccinated, and we know the pandemic now is much more a disease state among the unvaccinated. Those are the ones who are unfortunately Um, still getting ill and having the most severe illnesses and dying, unfortunately. Um, And just by the numbers and the proportions, given how many people are vaccinated, that's a far 
smaller segment. And fortunately, we have the beds and we have the personnel. People are tired and they've had enough of COVID, trust me. But we, we have enough of the other resources that we need to bring to bear on the topic to assure that the community remains safe. And that's, that's good news. That's a really good frame of mind. And I had just heard something that the, the Reno area uh, is really doing well compared to a lot of the rest of the country, and including the rest of Nevada, as far as the numbers here. Is that what I heard correctly? Yeah, it's, it's, we are struggling a little bit with some upticks, but the numbers have, on average, moved directionally downward over the last week to two, which is good news. We have fewer hospitalizations. We have fewer, um, all of the modeling that we have shows that we are moving in a positive way um, in northern Nevada with the pandemic, which is good. Good news. We, we all need a break from the daily grind multiple times a day of talking about COVID. I in preparing for this the last few days, I, I had a question that just came up in my mind was that healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, yourself, and do, do you sign a waiver? You know, saying that I'm going to be working around these sick people all the time. I'm going to, you know, in everything that I do, be taking my life into my own hands. Do they sign a waiver saying that, uh, you know, if something happens to me, I'm not going to come back. And, you know, if, if you're working in a construction site, and something comes down and crashes into you, you're taken care of. What happens with the healthcare workers when they're facing these same kind of things? I, I just, I had this pop up in my head and I wanted to ask somebody that might know. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, thank you for the question. It's a great question. Um, you know, healthcare is different in so many ways. It's a calling. People who are called to serve in healthcare do it because of something that drives them differently. We have amazing professionals who could easily serve in other industries. Our attention often goes to the frontline professionals, the nurses, the doctors, the pharmacists. But again, remember, a large and complex healthcare organization is made up of so many more people who are called into the industry. Professionals in accounting, professionals in housekeeping, professionals in facilities and marketing and all of the other areas that help to uh, help a healthcare organization like ours to thrive. And for the people who have answered the call on the front lines, they know what they're getting into. We obviously have a responsibility, or maybe they don't actually uh, know what they're getting into because the pandemic and, and the COVID virus was so unknown to everyone. Uh, what we do is obviously have a mechanisms to keep our people safe, to give them the protective equipment so that we can limit their exposures, to assure that we create a team-like environment so we balance risk uh, more broadly. And for our employees, we're very fortunate in that we actually provide them the health insurance that they need and the health services, the World Healthcare Company. If someone gets sick, they have uh, us and our network to choose from given how much care that we provide here in the community. So we never want to leave someone stranded. We want to make sure we've got their back as we go forward. And that was particularly emblematic during the pandemic with COVID. When people answered the call every single day and came to work to take care of those who were uh, not feeling well or were uh, sick. Now, the, the pandemic moved uh, telemedicine and virtual appointments to the forefront. Um, for you, 
What are the pluses and minus minuses of this newer medium? I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's really pushed it to the forefront, almost like, you know, Zoom. Zoom was used by some enterprises for a while. And then all of a sudden my mom's using it for church. Right. You know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden people are like, well, I don't want to go to the hospital because I don't want to get COVID. And that's what people are thinking, you know, at the beginning of this, when they didn't know much about it. And uh, all of a sudden here comes telemedicine and thank God for telemedicine and virtual appointments back then. Right. What are the pluses and minuses that you see um, with telemedicine and virtual appointments? Absolutely. And, and, and before I go to that, I just want to make sure that we remind people hospitals are safe. You can go to the hospital if you're sick and injured. Do not delay. It's okay. We will take care of you. If you have chest pain, you have weakness on one side, you have numbness, any of the things that we're trained to think about seeking health care for, make sure you get it and don't delay because you're afraid of COVID. It's the right place to be. If your cancer needs treatment, if your heart needs treatment, if your whatever needs treatment, make sure that you come in and let us help you. Well, you're, pro- you're probably a lot safer going to the hospital than you are going to the grocery store or somewhere else because we, you we guys are go. cleaning it all the time, right? Yeah, and, and we have the protective equipment to make sure that you can keep people appropriately isolated. In addition, we know that not you know a single setting is not right for everybody. So you may not need to go to the emergency department just because you think you have COVID. If your breathing is fine and you're a little bit worried, pick your primary care doctor, call your urgent care. Think about the alternative so you don't have to sit in the waiting room uh, if you're doing fine but worried and perhaps expose others. So the setting of care matters as well. But let's go to your question, John, about virtual care, which is a bigger umbrella under which we talk about um, uh, telemedicine. And, you know, Renown Health has been heavily invested in telemedicine for a decade. And the reason is because we serve a very broad geographic area. Here at Renown Health, we're the only tertiary provider covering 100,000 square miles. As you know well, Nevada gets rural really quickly. Apart from our two urban hubs in Clark County, where Las Vegas is, and in Washoe County, where Reno is, the rest of the state is very rural. And people in the rural or the frontier environment, many of them choose to be there, are very proud people. But we needed a mechanism to serve them Mm. and their specialty care years ago so that they didn't have to drive six hours to get to a cardiologist. And so we implemented on our team mechanisms using telemedicine to phone into a more local clinic, a more local hospital, and provide that physician expertise via a Zoom-like platform that allowed us to reach. So we're, we're old hat at some of that. And we acknowledge and recognize the opportunity to push it to a new level. So it's not only people who live in the rural environment who don't want to drive to see their doctor. Some people down the block don't want to drive to see their doctor. They'd rather do it on their living room sofa. And so we found a bigger demand for services that were telemedical in nature right here from people in town. And we responded to that in a way that made them feel safe and made them feel served and made them feel 
comfortable with the care that they were getting, even though it was delivered in their house. And that opened up a whole new opportunity for us. In addition to the episodic care, where you might have a question about a cough, a cold, a stomach pain, what we've found, and we've invested in this over the last 15 months, is a real need to do what we call hospital and home care. How do we build up our technology so not only are you having a visit with a doctor or a professional from your home, but if you need continued monitoring from your home, we can keep you there with home oxygen and keep an eye on you by virtue of putting a monitoring device on you and monitoring you in what we call our renowned transfer and operation center. That goes by RTOC for short, and it serves the needs of people more broadly from a monitoring perspective that goes beyond where they would be with a visit with their doctor or health professional. And let me share a couple other things. So today, we know I have 55 people today who are being monitored from our transfer, our renowned transfer and operation center from their home on a monitoring device. 55 people. That's pretty Think cool. Think about what that does for us in terms of increasing intrinsic bed capacity. They don't need to be in my hospital. They could be in their living room, right. eating their own food, surrounded by their family, but understanding that they can be cared for and have their care supervised by one of our amazing professionals, nurses, doctors, all sitting in that call center, that transfer center. And if they get into trouble, we can dispatch the REMSA ambulance to your home in a moment because they're also sitting there in the command center. Wow, this is revolutionizing our thinking and our commitment to better care coordination more broadly, not only in Northern Nevada, but in Nevada uh, across the state. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that my, my grandmother, God rest her soul, just passed away a few months ago back in Illinois. And all she wanted to do was be in her house, you know, and there's so many people that feel that way and they're so much more comfortable. And there's a lot to be said for a person's comfort and not having the anxiety of being in a hospital. If you can watch them, monitor them, and they can be in the comfort of their house surrounded by loved ones and family, uh, just it's, it does sound like a revolutionary, awesome thing. You know, it's, I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, I, too, lost my dad back in April of 2020 from COVID. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned uh, as, a, as an ICU doctor by background, as you mentioned in my introduction, uh, what is an ICU doctor? Many people don't actually know, even though the discipline has been around since the 1970s. And effectively, we don't, we don't get tagged. We, we don't have a specialty in one organ. I'm not a heart doctor. I'm not a lung doctor. I like to consider myself a primary care doctor who takes care of all organs with lots of fancy tools, like ventilators and like intensive uh, neuromonitoring. And we can monitor the physiologic status of every organ system in the intensive care unit and provide support to those organs when they're failing up until the body is able to recover on its own. That's what an ICU doctor does and what ICU nurses and, and pharmacists do. And so our job is to support until the body recovers and gets back to health. 
And then we remove those fancy pieces of equipment. But for me, as a healthcare leader and as a CEO, I love the ability to leverage this technology, even outside of the ICU. How can we use that same, those same kinds of monitors that were only housed in the hospital and extrapolate them to the home so that people can get intensive monitoring in their home? And if they need it, we're certainly happy to bring them in. But think about the convenience. Don't pass go. Don't pay $200. No need for you to go to the emergency room. Just go to bed 654 and someone will meet you there to take your name address and we will plug you into our system. A much more patient-centric, service-oriented model of care than we have unfortunately become accustomed to in healthcare. Pretty awesome. So I wanted to ask you a question that, uh, this is another one that uh, it really chaps my hide when I see people um, every day, and that's that's masks. And the, the idea or the ideas that are thrown around on different mediums all the time. I, I call masks kind of theater of the absurd, the way that I see different things going on where it's bandanas, uh, people wearing them down here below their nose. People, it's just like I walk into places and everybody are doing different things. It's a funny one that I saw in a casino was a lady who had a mask on. There was a hole right here and she had a cigarette hanging out of the hole in the mask. I was like, what are we doing? You know, so my my question behind masks is, you know, I've heard that just certain masks work, certain ones don't. From a medical professional, what what is your idea uh, behind um, masks and how what ones work and what ones don't and what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, all those kind of questions. Absolutely. So uh, let's go back to um, the fundamentals of what germ theory looks like. What's a germ, right? A germ, we all learned it growing up in grade school, and it's a very important public health framework for us to make sure that we're in touch with. And germs come in a variety of different places, ways. They come in bacteria, they come in fungi, they come in viruses, they come in a whole host of things. And what we've come to learn, and this is why, right, everybody garbs up appropriately when they go into the operating room and they make a cut in their skin is to assure that we're not transmitting uh, these germs and we're protecting the healthcare workers from whatever germs a patient may have that may come on to me as a doctor, surgeon, anesthesiologist, etc. Well, we've extrapolated that body of work outside the walls of the hospital and the operating room to think differently. And in the course of the context of, pan, uh, of the pandemic, remember, we didn't know a lot. We still don't. There's still things we're learning. Uh, I hearken this back to when I was a medical student during the AIDS pandemic. It took us years to learn the things that we needed to learn. And so while it looks controversial, it looks like we don't know what we're doing. In fact, we're learning along the way. Things that we thought we knew about the HIV virus back in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, are not what we know about the HIV virus now. And 30 years from now, when I'm retired on a beach talking about whether or not we remember that darn COVID outbreak in 2019, right? People will say, well, you remember all those darn masks we used to wear? But at the moment, we're doing all that we can do, pull out all the stops, because the reality is people are dying from this virus in a way that we've never seen before. 
And does the transmission get stopped with a, vi with a mask? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to tell you. What I know is my father died from this, and I don't want to. And right. so I'm going to take every precaution to make sure that when I'm wearing a mask, just like I was taught as a medical student, I'm going to put it on correctly. I'm going to wear it when I'm around people because I can't be sure that they're vaccinated or not. And I'm going to, as a cancer survivor, protect myself because that's in my control. I can't control what others are doing or thinking, but I can control what I'm doing. So a couple of weeks ago, two weeks or so ago, we went to visit family on the East Coast in a, in a, in a part of the country that is, um, shall we say, not adapting to the masking and the vaccine uh, in quite the way that other places have. And they're noticing an uptick in a surge. And here in Northern Nevada, we are really, I'll tell you, I think one of the reasons why we had, it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been, was because people listened. They stayed home. They sequestered, they wore a mask, and when the vaccines became available, they got vaccinated. Um, that's not the same in all parts of the country. And right. so when we were visiting family, I was distressed to, to watch as I walked into restaurants where the hostess wasn't wearing a mask, the wait staff wasn't wearing a mask, uh, people in the restaurant weren't wearing a mask, and I was uncomfortable because they also happened to be in hot spots where vaccination rates are low. And I wore a mask. When I went in Walmart, I wore a mask because there's a lot of people walking around without masks. And I want to make sure I was using whatever mechanism I could, even if it was just incremental. A guy who's been vaccinated, I will take every opportunity I can to protect myself because, I, you know, as someone who's even 20 years after cancer, want to make sure that I'm not going to die from COVID. Exactly. That's it. It's uh, it's interesting to walk around and see, and then also to listen to all the different. I say media, but there's so many different types. This is almost media now, a podcast, right? And there's so many different people that are talking, and what we need to realize is a lot of people have no clue what they're talking about, yeah. you know. So take it all with a grain of salt. So that's why I like to talk to people who, uh, like yourself know what the hell they're talking about and have a little bit of background into, you know, the disease and they've been working around the disease and sorry so much for the loss of your father. Um, you know, someone who's lost a father to COVID, you know, so I really appreciate uh, your candor uh, about that. And uh, I hope that everybody takes heed and uh, wears their mask correctly. Um, you know, it just kind of uh, takes a little bit more precaution. You know, it, it, thank you so much uh, for your kind words about my dad. You know, it's funny for me, and you mentioned this during the question, approaches to prevention are only as good as the effectiveness with which we use them. So if I have my mask hanging under my chin, which, by the way, I do if I'm by myself or not in an area where I'm in close proximity, uh, that is not the same effectiveness as when I'm in a store or a restaurant or in close proximity to people. I have to wear it effectively, cover my nose and mouth, make sure that it's an appropriately standardized mask. And I mean, when we are medical students, uh, and I was a nurse before medical school, 
you learn this. I can remember. You learn several precautions. You learn how to put your several gloves on. You learn how to put your mask on. And I can remember my hand being smacked by a nurse who said, you didn't do it right. And I had to do it all over again because there's a process and a procedure. And here we just gave it to people without any advice or any learning and, and said, here, have at it. And you think it's not really complicated, but people have to know. When I was a nursing student, we had a class. We spent 30 minutes learning how to wash our hands. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's important. You got to get soap in there. You got 30 seconds and you got to make sure you're doing all the right things. And it sounds silly, but it's not silly, right? And understanding how to do things is so, so important. And I'm excited. Um, I'm excited by the fact that with all of these public health interventions, whether it be a mask or washing our hands or getting vaccinated, all of those are public health interventions that we have lost sight of over the years. The value of them go beyond COVID. It's why we had such low rates of influenza last year. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, we're giving vaccines for influenza every year. And last year, we had very few people hospitalized with influenza. Why? We were in our homes. We were wearing masks. We were washing our hands like crazy. We were not around other people, and that prevents our transmission. Now, I don't want to be isolated forever, for sure. But I want to do the things that allow me to get back with the people I care about in the same room with a hug, because that's how you live life. And so good, let's use all the preventive opportunities we have to make a difference, not only for ourselves, but for each other, because we live in a community of other people. Yeah. And we're, we're here to help each other out. If I don't have you in my life and you don't have me in your life, then what the hell do we have? You know, it's like, we we have to lean on each other. So what I wanted to talk about next is uh, the vaccinations. I've got Pfizer. My wife has Moderna. I read that Moderna is better than Pfizer. <laughs> Which one's better? And Don't worry uh, about it. <laughs> that's, a, that's what I'm talking about. So the next question is, what's the latest that you heard on the booster shots that are coming out for the next round? Absolutely. So uh, thank you again. I mean, I honestly, we joke about it, but honestly, the effectiveness of the vaccines is very high. Okay. The side effect profiles are very low. Here's what we know at the, at the kind of macro level. People who are vaccinated, they can still have breakthrough cases, uh, but those cases just tend to be more mild and, the, uh, and dying from it, from COVID after you've had the vaccine is really, really low. Ending up on a ventilator is really, really low. If you're unvaccinated, you have the risk of having more severe disease, ending up on a ventilator to support your lungs and your breathing, and you're more likely to die. Those are the facts. Those are drawn out in the data. It doesn't much matter if you have Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson Johnson, get a vaccine. The conversation about uh, boosters is up in the air. There are conversations on both sides of the equation for those who choose in consultation with their health professional uh, because they may be older or immunosuppressed or have some condition that warrants additional protection uh, to the virus, they may want to get the booster shot. Uh, there are um, good reasons to get that. There's some data available on why and how and who. Um, and the 
it, it, you always want to look at this, John, as a risk-benefit profile. That's how we think about every intervention in healthcare. And so if your risk of getting severe illness and dying from COVID is really, really high, even though you've been vaccinated, those are the people you'd want to get a booster shot for. Now, while we're thinking about it, let's remember there's a lot of controversy here. Um, you know, the, the virus changes over time. That's why every year the influenza vaccine is somewhat different. Yeah, every virus changes over time, right? And so we've heard, and there's a lot of controversy about the Delta virus, which is a predominant, or the Delta variant, which is a predominant variant that's going around the country now and causing all this strife and trouble. Um, It's likely that we will have other variants as they come. And it's likely that boosters in the future will be different than the boosters now. But for now, the virus, the vaccine is highly protective. It works. If you have a risk profile, a cancer survivor that puts you at risk of getting really sick from the darn virus, get a booster. It's okay. You're going to go through 48 hours maybe of discomfort and aggravation, but you'll be, you, your immune system will be augmented in a way that if you're exposed to the virus, you will be able to better protect yourself to fight it off. All right. We're all tired of COVID. Let's get off of COVID. Thank you. <laughs> so. I'm in the staffing business. You know that. So uh, there's a big workforce shortage uh, going on right now, not just in healthcare, but everywhere. Uh, But uh, aside from working with a great company like IT Avalon, um, how else do you as a leader and your uh, leaders that you manage, how do you renown find and retain talent? Thank you. That's a great question because it lets me showcase again all of the people who uh, choose and are chosen to serve in healthcare. This is healthcare is a tough business, man. This mm-hmm. is not this is not for the weak of heart. And so, for those people, we want to make sure that not only are we doing all that we can to attract them to healthcare. That's a generational issue. Going into the high schools, going into grammar schools, and educating kids on what healthcare careers might look like. I got my first exposures in healthcare uh, when I was 14 years old as a medical explorer in the local hospital, an offshoot of the Boy Scouts of America, where I really learned what careers in healthcare as an industry were available. That's the pipeline we need to be tapping into. And let's not forget the other end of the continuum, where we've got experienced members of our workforce who we have to work hard every single day to make sure we are retaining them because their experience and talent that they've accumulated over decades is so important, not only for educating and training the next generation, but for serving the needs of our consumers with expertise and experience uh, like no other. And so I take care of in that one conversation, not only the pipeline, but the retention conversation as we're moving forward. And then there's everybody in the middle. How we're recruiting talent here is important. And a large part of that is obviously the make sure your pay is competitive benefits and all of the rest of that. But how are you acknowledging people for 
their expertise? How are, the, how are you praising and rewarding those who go above and beyond? How are you thinking together about a vision for how you want to serve your community and engaging people on that vision that is different? If you show people a vision, they will come help you achieve it. People want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. That's mm-hmm. what draws us to healthcare. And the passion that goes with that and the energy and the fire in your belly that goes with wanting to serve others in that kind of macro environment is huge. And that's an opportunity that we have. Now, I think this is a place where we've really started our journey over the last 15, 18 months, which is and so important for that renowned transfer and operations center I talked about before. If you, any one discipline can get overwhelmed by the everyday work that goes on in their field. I'm going to give you an example outside of healthcare. Everybody thinks how exciting it is to be a police officer because if, if you watch TV, you think a police officer shooting people every other half hour. And that's not the life of a police officer. I have a daughter who's a police officer. That's not the life of a police officer. It looks all glamorous and it looks exciting, but there are lots of mundane activities that go part and parcel with the activities of having of being a, a career professional in law enforcement. And similarly, in healthcare, everybody thinks that the life of an ICU doctor, which I did for a long part of my career, is exciting. You're saving lives and you're doing things. Well. And there's a part of that, but it's a very small part of what you do. And so how do we help augment in healthcare, the professional by using a broader-based team approach to assure that patients and others receive the kinds of care that they can. There may be ways to use technical support that augments professional staff. There may be ways to use technology in a way that offloads the mundane writing and documentation. We know nurses spend you know, 20% of their time documenting in the medical records. Over the course of a 40-hour week, you know, that's a lot of time spent mm-hmm. doing nothing but documenting. How do we identify the technological solutions so that the nurse's expertise or the doctor's expertise or the pharmacist's expertise can be deployed to serving patients' needs? And that's the journey we're on at Renown Health, is to use technology differently, to tee up, if you will, the best places for nurses or pharmacists or doctors to intervene because there's a lot of predictive algorithms about where their services are needed most and first as a way of making their job and their experience that much more rewarding. In preparing for this uh, conversation today, um, one of the biggest challenges that I found for healthcare workers, uh, doctors and nurses was electronic health records, um, the mundane things they had to do, the drop down menus, trying to figure out exactly what it was. And like, like you said, instead of working with the people, which is really um, the passion of each one of these people is taking care of other people and not sitting there and spending 20, 25% of their time doing all these mundane things. And uh, it's interesting. It just exactly what you talked about is what I read about, you know, the last couple of days. So it's an interesting thing. You know, it is really interesting that in healthcare, like many other industries, we are heavily regulated. 
And in many ways, again, this goes to the learning part of the curve. Uh, in many places, we learned, wow, 20, 30, 20 years or so ago, maybe a little bit more, um, that in healthcare, we weren't doing a fair enough job of appropriately attending to pain and the management of pain in patients. And so what we did was we put a whole bunch, we learned that we had to put a whole bunch of policies in place. We had to be better at assessing pain and administering pain medications and, and moving forward and adapting with alternatives the way we control people's pain. Maybe it's imagery, maybe it's uh, other things that we use, uh, aromatherapy that helped people manage their pain. But what we ended up with many years hence was an opiate epidemic. And so how... Right, it's not true, true, and unrelated. But how does when we how do we when we think about new and innovative approaches to perhaps tackle a problem, we start to understand the repercussions of what those changes mean because they may not become evident for ten or twenty years, and we have to. That doesn't mean we were dumb. It doesn't mean that pain management needs to be attended to. It just means that we've matured in our understanding of how we go about our work. I can remember as an ICU doctor uh, 20 years, 25 years ago, the first thing we would do for a child who was critically ill on a ventilator was start a morphine infusion and an Ativan infusion. And when we discharged them, we put them on a methadone detox and an Ativan detox. And this was just the standard of care. And luckily, 25 years later, we've gotten much smarter and we've got better therapies that are non-addictive so we can keep the child comfortable and allow them to not become addicted to these terrible substances. But that's much, you know, people give us too much credit in healthcare. We, we're still learning. We're still doing research. We're still asking questions and finding answers. It doesn't mean we were dumb. It means we're maturing. And you can apply that same conversation to the COVID pandemic. And please, I don't want to go back there, John. <laughs> but I want to bring that up as another example of how we have to help our providers if we're going to retain them and make healthcare a place that people continue to want to contribute and aspire to, that we give them better and more efficient ways of working to do their job. And it may mean that the doctor and the nurse and the pharmacist and the technician and, and the seven people who are in the medical record don't all need to be writing the same thing. Maybe we could do it once and we could authenticate it across the board. Right. Wow. Imagine what that would do for saving time. You get the idea of the way we're trying to think about that. Well, yeah, I think that's why you were called practitioners because you are always practicing and like you said before, viruses are always changing and mutating and everything's changing all the time. So before um, we started the podcast, I told you I'm, I'm seven years sober. Um, I had no idea I was going to become an alcoholic. Just like people have no idea they're going to become addicted to these drugs. Mm -hmm. Just like doctors had no idea that people would react that way to them. And it's, you know, the best of intentions sometimes turn out completely different from those intentions. Um, but it's great to hear that, you know, you're trying to tackle those issues now um, later on down the road and try to figure out a better way to treat uh, people. So uh, 
Well, c- congratulations on your sobriety. That is, as you know well, an amazing journey. And every day is another step in that journey to making sure that you continue to be diligent. And just like that, so is the trajectory of healthcare, where each day we're asking questions and trying to find new solutions for how we keep on the path. Right. It's the same kind of a journey. And uh, we're at Renown Health, we're very proud to be thinking and creating and innovating so that that journey stays as the focal point of our existence. Now you talked about a little bit earlier. Um, you were diagnosed with cancer 38 years at 38 years old. What type of cancer was it? I had an oral cancer, a tongue cancer, which was really interesting because those kinds of cancers usually come, uh, I was 38 at the time, as you mentioned, usually came in men who were in their 60s and 70s and had a lifelong history or a long history of drinking uh, alcohol and uh, smoking. And I had neither of those. Um, but nonetheless, there's a small pocket of men in their 30s, epidemiology-wise, who um, get this kind of cancer. And uh, at the time, I I was blessed uh, to be knowledgeable enough to know not to wait and got amazing health and healthcare services at a way- Well, let me me ask you a question at the beginning here, because true ambition is all about helping people. So- how did you first notice it? What, what were some of the first signs that other people maybe can look for um, to maybe check themselves out? Absolutely. Well, it, it was obvious. I had what was what I thought was a canker sore. And this is, you know, this is on all those public service billboards. I had a canker sore that would not go away. Mm. And you say to yourself, huh, why didn't it go away? And you wonder about that. And if you happen to be a doctor, who, especially one who's an ICU doctor, you think of the worst case first. <laughs> so, right. So I went into the doctor, went to see the doctor, and I said to him, Hey, <clears throat> uh, this could be, it could be an infection, it could be a virus, it could be. I said, Or maybe it could be cancer. And he said, Why would you come on? So we stop thinking. Why would it be cancer? You've got no risk factors. You've got no uh, predisposition. There's no family history. And then he looked in my mouth and he said, I have to do a biopsy. And I said, well, wait a minute. You said it wasn't cancer. Well, I didn't look. Now I looked. I got a biopsy. And so it goes to the point of uh, if something doesn't seem right, it might be embarrassing, but it's okay. It's okay because your health provider will want you to be there and to be, I'd rather have the false alarm. I'd rather have um, the check and the balance to assure, you know, they say the, you know, often a lawyer or a doctor, a doctor who treats himself as a fool. I don't treat myself. I've had plenty of education. I've, I've been around and surrounded by some of the most amazing uh, providers to learn from. And I don't treat myself, nor do I treat my family. There are reasons for that. Go right. get advice when you need it from a friend. That's great. Um, now, one of the foundations or organizations that my wife and I um, support is a place called Cancer Support Community. And uh, they're located in uh, California and around the country. And it's almost like a 12-step program for cancer patients. Uh, people who just find out that they have cancer because 
what I've heard from these people is you kind of feel like you're on an island by yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you first um, find out that you have cancer, how did you cope with it when you found out you had it? And how did you fight it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so there's a couple of things. Um, I, th- I believe that mindset matters. Uh, I had the value, you hear me talk about my father all the time. My father was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when he was 42. Hmm. And I watched him paralyzed from the neck down on his first exacerbation. Uh, and I was 18, 17, 18 years old at the time, went to the hospital and ha- had helped him as a young, uh, healthy kid get out of bed and get his wheelchair out of the trunk of the car. And I learned from my father the value of resilience and the value of strength, mind strength, not just physical strength and mm-hmm. how those things work together. And if you have a strong mind, it can make a stronger body. And he wills himself. He said to me as he laid there paralyzed with three limbs, I will walk again, despite the medical convention at the time that said he would. And so I, uh, upon diagnosis, I remember the doctor who took my chart, we had paper charts at the time, and kind of smacked his hand and said, it's cancer. And I went into this, I remember breaking out in a cold sweat, I was by myself, and I remember going into this zone in my head where it was like one of those Charlie Brown shows. All I heard was want, 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 and I didn't hear anything he said after you have cancer. Right. And I don't know how long time went by. It was a good thing I was sitting because I probably would have fainted. Um, and he said, do you have any questions? That's what I remember waking, you know, kind of coming back to. Do you have any questions? And I said, I missed everything from you have cancer to do you have any questions? Start over. And so for many people, they would feel embarrassed to start over or challenge the doctor, ask questions. You have to realize doctors are just like anybody else. I didn't get it. I was in some other world while, you know, contemplating the world around me. And so it's very important to anchor on the facts of what you have. And so he started over in a very compassionate and diligent way. And, um, and then when you are facing the uphill battle of what your cancer care will look like, it's almost overwhelming. I found value in the fact that I knew the path. I knew the path and the time horizon. I could see it in its totality. It was going to be between the time of surgery and the finishing of chemotherapy, four months. And I could get my head around a four-month journey that would have implications even after the four months to a lifestyle and a lifetime of screening that was different and x-rays that were different and therapies that were different. But I knew from the time I could box that into a place and let it be manageable. And I have family members who are going through a new cancer journey right now. And unfortunately for them, and I've asked them to get concrete from their doctors about what that journey looks like, because for them, they're told, hey, we've got this. And next week, you need to go for a PET scan. Okay, well, what's after the PET scan? And then the next week, you got to go see the specialist. And the week after that, and, and there's no way for you to organize the steps. And it just looks like a perpetual wheel in motion. 
And the help, you get help when you understand the journey. I do, going back to that point, though, about mindset matters, I can remember the doctor saying to me, and he kind of slapped his, his, my, my chart on his hand and said, you have cancer, and you need to know that 50% mortality in five years. And I said, reflexively, I know which 50% I'm going to be in, the surviving 50%. And... You don't know, John, there, as we said, there's so much we don't know about, about cancer care, about viruses, about germ theory. There's so much we don't know in medicine, but I believe in my heart that mindset matters. I saw it with my father who walked again and lived an additional 40 years after they told him he wouldn't. I saw it in my cancer diagnosis. And so I encourage people when they are facing an uphill health battle, no matter what it is, addiction, cancer, heart disease, neurological disease, mindset matters, be tough, be strong. And if you need help in being tough and strong, because it's okay, you can become depressed, you can become anxious, whatever it is, get the help you need, because you too can overcome. You're an example of that, I'm an example of that, and I think there are many, many other examples of that in our world. That's awesome advice. And uh, I think one of the main things is reach out for help. There's so many people that will help you if you will just ask for the help. There is people out there that will give you the shirt off their back. They will point you in the right direction if you just ask, because you know there's nothing more important to someone who's gone through what you've gone through than pointing somebody else in the right direction. I've been there. I've done that. Let me tell you what to do. Um, just, just put away the pride, ask somebody else for help and they'll give it to you. So I appreciate. And you know that well, right? I mean, our part of the recovery process is our ability to contribute to others and make their journey, maybe even just a little easier than mine was. And so I will often get on the phone with folks from around the community and around the state Young people, young men who, when I was in my 30s, you know, this was shocking. I've, I've been here to people, medical students who were 25 with oral cancer and other people who uh, were older but nonetheless had it were on the journey, as I'm sure you've been. We answer the phone to make other people's journey that much easier. If we could just know about it, if we could just help, we want to help. Well, the, the fun part about it for us on the helping side is we're helping ourselves more than the person that we're talking to, you know, and that, that's the, the great part about it in, you know, like I said, this is named true ambition. It's about helping other people. It's just like we talked about before leaning on other people in our community is what it's all about. So I appreciate your candor. Um, you know, you talked about your father. Uh, one of the things you also talked about uh, when we talked earlier was your grandmother and uh, how very important she was. Mine, who I just lost, Riva Doty was, you know, my everything. Um, you know, what did your grandmother teach you that enriched your life and made you a better person? Oh, what didn't, what didn't she teach me? I mean, she was, she was an old Italian lady. Um, and uh, as she said, <clears throat> it's actually kind of funny. Um, I was five years old when, when her husband, my grandfather, died, so I didn't know him particularly well. But she used to say to me, I've had two men in my life, your grandfather and you, and you are my light. 
And she was just an amazing woman, taught me so much. I, I often say, and I've been quoted to say, uh, everything I needed to learn about life, I learned from grandma by the time I was five. And it's true. She had a sixth grade education, but she was a supervisor and a four lady for, as she used to tell me the stories, 40 women in a chemical plant filling perfume bottles. And the, you know, and this was in the, in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, at a time when women in the workforce, right, we were coming off the war and we were, women getting into the workforce was not a common concept. Right. And, and grandma was there and she took that same energy and passion of being a supervisor and applied it in the home. Family was everything. Everything for her. And so you learn. You learn as you go through. Well, I had uh, my grandmother. I would uh, same way. I mean, she was she was amazing. But I would sit down with her, and I'd have some big puzzling issue that would just be driving me crazy. So I'd sit down with her, and I'd lay it all on the line. And she wouldn't say a word. And we'd get to the end, and she'd go, "Well, John, you know what to do." And that's all I needed to hear, you know, because my mother and my grandmother taught me everything I needed to know from a very early age. Um, unfortunately I didn't listen to them. <laughs> I didn't follow those, um, lessons very well for a while, but I'm doing my best to catch up now. Um, but you know, just like you said, and it rang true with uh, your words that, uh, I, I learned just about everything I needed to know by the time I was five or six or seven years old. Um, just, it was up to me if I followed them or not. Um, but, uh, I, I I really appreciated uh, you know, what you said about your grandma because it's the same way I feel. Yeah, you know, it's funny because those relationships are so deep and part of our core. But she used to call me in Italian. She used to call me Poopaloo. And that's Poopaloo in Italian is a cucumber. And I'm like, Grandma, <laughs> what is that? You call me a cucumber. She goes, yeah, because you're not thinking. You're not thinking. <laughs> you have the brain of a cucumber. But I can remember, I mean, like it was yesterday. It was 25 years ago when she died. And I was a young, fledgling ICU doctor still in training. I was in Washington, D.C. And a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine was her hospice nurse. We had, when I was a resident, we had worked together. And she called me and she said, Tone, if you're coming to see grandma, now's the time. But you got a four-hour drive. She's not doing good. She was in hospice care at home. And I was contemplating. On the, she said, if you're coming, come now. So I, I said to everybody, hey, I got to go. Grandma's dying. I got to drive to New Jersey. And uh, during the journey I was contemplating, here I was, an ICU doctor, surrounded by all of the latest, greatest technologies, learning how to care for critically ill children with machines and technology. And when it came to my family and my grandma, someone who was very close and dear to me, I held her in my arms as she died and titrated her morphine. And I said to, I said to Tammy, who was her nurse, you tell her to wait for me. I'm on my way. And she did. So a couple questions here to, uh, these are kind of softball questions here to end it. But I like to uh, ask about a couple different things that I ask everybody about was, uh, did you want to be a doctor when you grew up, when you were five years old? And if not, no. what did you want to be? No, it took a whole lot more maturing. I had to wait till I was eight to figure out <laughs> that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but yeah, and it was actually surprising to the family because no one in the family was ever a doctor. And so, um, and I didn't really like going to the doctor. Dr. Messina, I remember him like it was yesterday. Dr. Rudolph Messina was my pediatrician. 
And every time you went, you got stuck with a needle. So I'm like, well, this is nothing. Um, and many years later, I got to work with Dr. Messina. He was in his late 80s and still practicing. And I practiced alongside, imagine that. Uh, and I said to him, at the time, Dr. Messina, you don't know me, but uh, my name is Anthony Sloan, and I was uh, one of your patients when you were a pediatrician. And he said, I always knew something would come of you. <laughs> 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 but um, being a pediatrician has been an amazing journey for me. Being an ICU doctor and caring for six kids and families has just been a, a very fulfilling part of my life. And I can't, it's all I ever wanted to do. That's great. So outside of your career, what do you do for fun? Um, a lot of things, actually. I, I like to write. Uh, and so you commented before on all the books I've written. I actually like to write books and I like to uh, create. It helps me think. It helps me organize. It helps me uh, be part of something bigger. I'm still an active researcher and I like to research. And I like to write in ways that help organize the world so other people can understand it. If you ask me, John, you know, I, I'm a, yes, I'm a doctor, a public health professional and a, a leader, but my work each day, the work I do is focused on teaching. I'm a teacher. I come to work every day to try and teach. And my writing helps me teach because maybe somebody will read it in a way that helps them understand where it is now. I don't have all the answers. I don't pretend to have all the answers. But I'm also uh, open enough to share that I don't uh, know the answers. And it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to know everything. And um, you can get help when you need it. And that's good. That's really good. So uh, one of the things that I do for fun is play music. I'm a musician. I play drums and I sing. And I know that you're a big fan of uh, old Blue Eyes. I so, am. Uh, it's, uh, what's your favorite Frank Sinatra song? New York, New York, of course. I'm <laughs> from New York. I went to college and medical school in New York. I practically grew up in the city. And um, that is, you know, it's funny for me. I've been... One of the many, many reasons that uh, I was so fascinated by the life and times of Frank Sinatra, uh, my dearest friend in the world, a guy named Anthony from New Jersey, uh, we, you know, he got me into Frank Sinatra. You can't be a kid in New York, New Jersey, and not appreciate Frank Sinatra. It's, it's a cultural thing. It's just what you become. But the amazing thing about Frank Sinatra's life, and he's been uh, dead since 1996 or so, uh, 25 years later, we're still talking about it. Yeah. 25 years later, the multi-generational approach that he had where he attracted people. And my kids can talk to you about Sinatra. My daughter can sing songs. She sings them to my granddaughter. And wow, that's a pretty incredible thing. She was two years old when he died. And yet that has become part of the family and part of the tradition. That's an incredible legacy from one man when you think about it. And so, you know, as a musician yourself, you can only imagine what that looks like in, in the ways that your songs or your music may touch someone where you have no idea, no conceptualization of the fact that you've really hit a nerve with them in a way. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but words have meaning and so do music. I love, I love Christmas and uh, that whole catalog from He bing crosby i mean all those rat pack guys the the songs that they did for christmas i mean that's a that's a part of our catalog 
No, we, we start right after Thanksgiving. I mean, right, right. after Halloween, we kind of skip Thanksgiving just so we can get all that great music. And uh, I just love all of that uh, music. I can't wait because we're only a couple months away from it, uh, putting right. that on and enjoying it. Well, somebody between the smoke and the virus, my summer got stolen from me. So I want to make sure that now that we have clear air and the virus, that virus looks like it's holding its course in northern Nevada, hopefully we can enjoy our lives again. We all deserve it. Well, I appreciate you being here today. I've got one last question that I ask every guest that's on the True Ambition podcast. And so the quote that I took True Ambition from actually comes out of a book called The 12 and 12 from uh, um, my, one of my recovery books. And it says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. When I read that seven or so years ago, it kind of changed my life. I've always been ambitious. And most of the people I talk to on here are very ambitious people. Being where you've been, um, going through what you've been through, knowing what you know now, what is your true ambition now moving forward? Uh, that's a great question. And wow, uh, thank you again for inviting me to be a part of True Ambition today. Um, you know, it, when you, um, so many of the experiences I've shared today, dad and his multiple sclerosis, my cancer journey, where I happened to find myself among a great team in the middle of a pandemic, trying to help people live healthier or restore them to health. Uh, that's the true ambition because, you know, I've come to learn all the rest of it could be taken away in a minute. And it's irrelevant to living life uh, more peacefully and uh, more appreciatively. When you're 38 years old and at the kind of rising tide of your career and get, um, get put in the middle of knowing that your future is uncertain and your kids are young, life really comes to uh, matter to you and you and important. And the signposts for that were there my whole life. Amazing family, as we've shared, who taught me the value of family and living life and being healthy and all the rest of it. And so my work, my mission each day is to come. And uh, if you're sick, our job is to make you healthy. And if you're healthy, it's to keep you there. Because health matters in terms of the way uh, that we approach life. When you're not healthy, it's a distraction to living. And we want to make sure that uh, our true ambition frames itself out in terms of how we help others to live uh, a healthy life. And hopefully I can help to do this for a long time to come. Love it. It's been a great conversation. And Tony, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. John, great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in to the True Ambition podcast. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for stopping by. The True Ambition podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be